You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to this edition of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Today's topic is operations at transformer vault fires in high-rise commercial office buildings. Our Manhattan units have extensive experience with these complex incidents that require the IC and all members to be aware of numerous operational considerations. With us today is a returning guest on the podcast, Battalion Chief Anthony Pascicello, currently assigned to Battalion 9. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, thank you, Brian. Good to have you back. Last time we had you down here, we were talking about drones. You were Correct. covering battalion chief, and yep. uh, maybe you could fill us in where yep. you've been since then. So the drone program has rapidly taken off, literally. It's morphed into robotics in addition to the drones, and that program is still doing very well. I still kind of consult a little bit with those members, but recently this year, I was assigned permanently to Battalion 9 in Midtown, Manhattan. And if people aren't familiar, it's the busiest battalion in the city with a whole myriad of different types of responses that we do on a daily basis. And what do they call it? The heart of Midtown? Yes, the pride of Midtown. Yep. Yeah, pride of Midtown. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it was fair to say, right, if you could name a few battalions, the 1st, the 6th, yep. 7th, 8th, 9th, probably yep. do the bulk of those high-rise that we're here to talk about, but really all the 1st and 3rd Division units is, uh, especially. Correct. High-rise transformer vault fires is such a Manhattan incident, right? It's, yep. it's uh, they, complex. They, nothing's easy. Correct. They escalate rather quickly, usually multiple alarms, extra relief, and then you know, a lot of coordination between a lot of other agencies. Like for us, it's Con Edison is our primary partner with these. But there's a lot of behind-the-scenes working with the building staff, et cetera, to, uh, to coordinate them. Usually when they happen, they, they happen big and bad. And there's a lot of things that have to be considered for the successful outcome of the operation. But overall, we we learn from each one of them, and we just apply it to the next one. And we seem to be doing better and better, I think, as time goes on with them. Yeah, and there's no shortage of them. And one thing I will say for our our wider audience is, while this is Transformer Vaults at high-rise office buildings, there's a parallel to, you know, you'll find these things in large shopping centers. Yep, correct. So, you know, with the expanse of high-rise buildings and larger complexes, and of course, the higher demand for electricity, you know, it's a little more self-sufficiency for that extra drawer of electricity. The transformer vaults issued by the utility is dedicated to those particular complexes, whether it's a hospital, shopping center. And now we're seeing them more with the increase of, you know, what's known as mega high-rises. I'll give you an example, like the Hudson Yards area. Those are primarily, a lot of them are residential buildings, but because of the height and the occupancy and so forth, they have their own dedicated transformer vault rooms for them also. So what used to exclusively kind of be just for a big high-rise office building is now expanding, and it's expanding around the whole city, actually. What do you consider a mega high-rise? Anything over 800 feet. How many do we have in the city? I believe we have 50, either in use now or on paper coming. The, the term billionaires row along like 57th Street and that part of, um, there are quite a few over there and obviously Hudson Yards. We're seeing them more and more. I mean, right down the block here from Fire Headquarters, you'll see one right here on Flatbush Avenue. It's a mega high rise right there. And there's plans in other parts of the city. Long Island City has already has like a 60-story building out, out there, and I believe there's a few more slated for that area. So it is expanding. I, I do see parts of the city like the Bronx starting to be 
developed for some mega high rises there. Of course, lower Manhattan is always a part of that. Yeah, down in the lower part of the Bronx, you definitely see it as you, you traverse your way through the Bronx. Correct. So listen, we're going to get into it, but I thought maybe we first would start talking about just the high rise fire. There's so many considerations. You think about the amount of people that work in a high rise during the day and any fire of any degree is serious. What are some considerations you have as the incident commander arriving to a working fire in a high rise building? Right. So several things. Number one, one of the most important and basic things that we always do is check the alarm panel. It may seem kind of routine, but you always want to check the alarm panel because you could have an incident come in as a phone alarm and a guy tells you, yeah, we have smoke on uh, the 15th floor. And then when you get in, you look at the alarm panel, it actually says a smoke detector on the 11th floor. So that's the first thing. You always want to make sure you start low, that you didn't pass where the incidents actually started. And then, of course, besides the alarm panel, you want to try to find the fire and life safety director and or the building engineer because it's their building and they know it better than we do. They're the start as far as helping us with the HVAC system, the elevators, what's working, what's not, and also the evacuation. Are people coming down with stairwells, et cetera? Because yeah, that's and all communication too. and communications. Communications is improving. We have the auxiliary radio systems now, and that's helping some of that because that is a, a huge problem in glass and steel high rises. Those are the important aspects. And for us, the first thing that we always try to do is get access to the building information card. That is key. It gives you the diagram. It gives you the layout, your stairwells, any hazards, your utilities, et cetera. Like this topic here with transformer vault rooms, that's on the BIC card. You'll know right off the bat if, if you have one of these facilities inside the building. But a lot of it's information gathering. And that helps you prepare your plan for attack. And as the fire progresses, sectoring, right? We often talk about that. You'll see it in large-scale incidents. But in a high-rise fire, you need sectoring. It makes the managing of that incident so much easier. We have the fire sector. Then we have this search Well, yeah, I was going to say, maybe you could explain, Correct. just while we're on this part, mm -hmm. uh, the 1076. Yes. It's for commercial high-rise office buildings. Correct. And maybe some, we get a lot of resources on you that. Yes, you have a huge amount of resources. Right off on the bat on the 1076, you have four chiefs coming in, which is good because you're going to start putting them all in key positions. Fire sector, of course, that chief is going to make that determination where the location is, if it's extending, how our attack is going, do we need additional resources. The next sector that we like to address right away is search and evacuation. It's human nature. People want to get out. No matter how many times you may tell them, please stay in place, etc., you're safe. They still want to go out, and we have to manage that somehow. And you need a chief with additional companies to handle that. And then you might have a roof sector. Like this type of an incident with a transformer vault, you're probably going to assign a chief as a ventilation group or a ventilation sector. That chief will help to mitigate that problem of the smoke migration and so forth. They should have additional resources, whether it's ladder companies, event support unit, et cetera, and that'll help alleviate that problem in the building. And you get a lot of special units. You get high-rise units. We have two high-rise units in Manhattan that carry specialized families. And Correct. And we use them, high-rise one and high-rise two, we use them extensively for ventilation support. And the members in the offices of those units are very well trained. If you give them a floor and a problem, you know, maybe it's a, a floor that dead ends, so to speak, where there's no windows or anything, is a corner and so forth. They are very adept on knowing how to open and close doors, place a smoke blocker curtain, or the placement of that fan to help mitigate that smoke and gases up there. Yeah, the specialized units, that's mm -hmm. what they do, right? Yep. We had 
line of duty deaths with these type of fires. I believe the Times Square building, members on a truck company on an upper floor. I think 20 searching. floors above a cell fire. Correct, a cell fire, and they ended up passing away due to you know carbon monoxide and other gas exposure and such. Part of the biggest problem is the migration of smoke and carbon monoxide and other types of gases. And like you said, that was an incident where it was kind of early on before we had proper SCBA and mass policies where, you know, the smoke would rise. And we, we really didn't identify you know, smoke migration back then well where members were overcome. We're fortunate today we have CO meters on every officer and at least another one in a truck. So we're constantly monitoring that air quality for that. All right, so let's get back to our topic, transformer vault fires. Initially, during your size up, what are some signs you might be dealing with a transformer vault fire. So a lot of times, the initial call may be for an automatic alarm, smoke detector, et cetera. Then as you're responding, the dispatcher may call and say, uh, we're getting an additional call for a smoke in the basement. They always term it as basement, but you have to think it's a cellar. It's, we don't really have basements in high-rise buildings. And once you hear that, that's kind of your tip-off right there. A lot of times in wintertime, snowy weather where salt and snow melt is used, that's a problem because... A lot of these transformer vaults, if you look around the outskirts of a high-rise building on the sidewalk, you'll notice a lot of open grating. And a lot of that open grating is the transformer vault right there. It's obviously for the utility company, they can replace them easy, but then what happens is it abuts the cellar area of that building, which becomes the transformer vault room for that building. So those are the, kind of the tip-offs. If you arrive and you start seeing maybe steam or smoke on that grating on the exterior, it's probably the best decision to make for the incident commander to call for Con Ed resources early. Even if they can't get a crew, at least get a supervisor who can tell you, yes, it's ours, and they can address that for you and everything. But those are usually the indicators. Once you get the, the automatic alarm or a sprinkler activation and you hear smoke from the cellar or the smoke from the basement, start thinking that it's a good chance that it's going to be a, uh, a transformer vault room. Right, right. And sometimes they start in the street, too, and yes, make their way to and make their way inside to the building and, and, and extend that way. Correct. Talk about some of the properties of the transformer vault rooms that you find inside the building. There's several tip-offs that we utilize, right? Number one, the door itself is not a normal door. It's usually a heavy steel door, kind of has like that vault-style protection on it. The door handle is not a normal door handle. It's not a regular knob. It's a sort of a latch system that has to be disengaged. And the other tip-off that we use a lot of times is, is a brass padlock because it's locked for obvious reasons by the utility company. Sometimes it may be on a chain, sometimes it won't. The other factor that we use is the signage. A lot of times it'll have a warning sign that says high voltage, keep out, no human entrance and so forth. Notify the utility, it'll have that information. But sometimes the buildings, you know, with the upkeep of maintenance, they paint over these doors. So what they do is they paint over the signs, but the two tip-offs that you find is the padlock, and the other thing that you may find is a brass plate with numbers on it to identify that transformer. Similar to what you would find on a utility pole. Most utility poles have numbers on it that we relay back to the electric company when we need to have a power cut and so forth. It's the same kind of thing. So even though they paint over it, you can still see the, the raised lettering, and that should be a tip-off that this is the door to entrance to a transformer vault room in that building. We talk about mega high-rises, but we can't forget, one time square has been around for... <laughs> Absolutely, a very long time, yeah. We, maybe we might not call it a high-rise yeah. anymore, but it yeah. was a high-rise, and it technically falls in the definition. Correct, of correct. And, you know, in New York City, we use 75 feet or more as, as our definition. So, yeah, definitely. We classify them like the 38 code and the, the 68 code and then the modern code. They all have their unique parts about them, but they're still high-rises in our eye. Sure. How about some of the initial hazards? Like, one of the main things is we don't know what's burning, and the toxicity of the smoke is, is a real concern. So we could talk about mask usage and 
patience, you know, which is not our forte, you know, these right. type fires. Just talk about some of the hazards we could expect. Absolutely. So the unique thing about this type of fire, as opposed to most fires, is, you know, we're very aggressive on our interior approach, right? If the door is not open, we're going to force entry. This type of fire here, if the door is closed, you leave it closed. Because the problem is, is if you force entry, number one, there's nothing in there as far as a life hazard anyway. The only thing that's in there is bus bars and other type of metallic infrastructure transferring the electricity in there. Obviously, us going in there with no life hazard with metal tools and it may be a smoky situation, you could see how, how this could go terribly wrong. So it's a very much of a slowdown approach. Determine if there's any extension out of the room into any areas of the hallway or another adjoining area. And basically, it's stay and wait until Con Ed or whatever electric utility arrives to kill the power. Because like just like a manhole fire, once you kill the power, everything else kind of dies out. And it's the same situation in here. And speaking to members from the utility company, they'll tell you there's nothing in there to really burn except for maybe some plastic insulation on the wiring. And we know from our books that they give off a lot of different types of bad chemicals, right? Polyvinyl chlorides, right? PVC, et cetera. It's all deadly stuff that can just basically hurt you. And there are instances of them letting go, though, transformers. It's not unlike a manhole entirely. Correct. Right? And and that's another factor why you don't really want to force entry because if the toxic gas is... designed to contain it. It's, it's containing it, correct. If, if it does explode, if there is some sort of an explosion in it due to the toxic gases, the door helps prevent that from endangering you know, people in the hallway, et cetera. And uh, like I said, it, the, the migration and buildup of the gases in there, you don't want to just start opening it up or using tools or have a spark, et cetera, that could create an explosion in a worse situation. The uh, reason I, I came upon this topic, I was reading an old WNYF magazine, and uh, you had written an article in, I think it was the spring 2020 edition. Yes. You had an incident. You and another chief officer sat down and said, all right, we're going to write an article. Yes, and the main precipitator for this article was because we had a, another unit come in that wasn't familiar with the transformer vault room and told the initial units, I think you should force the door and go in. And the officer knew enough that, no, that's not the right way to handle this tactic. And this article was born out of that. Myself and Chief Ferrante, he was the Division Three chief that responded, and we decided we need to put this out there to make sure that you know members are aware of the dangers of these type of incidents and not to force those doors and why why it's so dangerous to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why WNYF is so valuable. It shares experiences from around this Correct. city. Because anybody could be relocated to Midtown Manhattan Correct. Or, or any other. There's so many different circumstances. A similar thing could happen. We talked about the Con Ed removal. And for our wider audience, Con Ed is our local utility company in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. How important their response is. Talk about power removal and working with Con Ed. And, you know, I know in your article you got specific about taking a chief officer and assigning them to the white hat. Explain those things and how power removal works because there's a lot of different considerations. You're standing in front of an high-rise office building. Yep. It could affect adjacent buildings and Correct. so many considerations. It's a great question because it's not as simple as just throwing a switch and turning off the power. You have a lot of things that you have to take into consideration, and it's kind of a teamwork situation. You'll need the building engineer. You'll need the Con Edison representative, and you'll need, uh, obviously, our input. Yes, we do usually assign a chief to act as the liaison, becomes the Con Ed sector, basically. We have to determine from Con Ed A if they can shut the power off, how that's going to be done. Can it be done remotely or that I literally have to go from the outside and start cutting wires in the street to kill that power? The other thing that you have to take into consideration is the building. Did we fully evacuate the building? Is this going to affect the elevators and other equipment in that building? Now, most buildings obviously today have generators and UPS-type systems, uninterruptible power supply. 
But you have to determine that from the engineer because it could have a reverse effect on things. So you have to make sure that, A, that they're able to power, let's say, the fire pumps for that building if in case there is a further fire, if it'll affect the elevators, if they can still run, if there's people, you know, maybe you have wheelchair accessible persons on an upper floor. Now we have to make sure that we can get them down when the time Which comes. Which you have with almost any, uh, any, any building, right, correct. So those are all factors. You just can't throw a switch and then say, and at this particular fire, and especially, this transformer powered this 46-story high-rise building. But at the other end of the block was, I believe, a 30-story residential occupancy. And this transformer powered that building also. So thankfully, their representative told us that when we kill the power at this transformer, it's going to affect that building. So what we did was we assigned the truck company to that building. And the first thing they did was they went in, they met with building staff, explained the situation, and we recalled all the elevators. So we made sure we had everything at the first floor lobby so that when the power was cut off, we didn't have anybody trapped in an elevator. And then the next thing we did was we addressed, was there anybody in the building that was on life safety equipment that needed to have power to those apartments so that we could send the generator up there or remove them to a safer location. So yeah, it is a complex thing. It's not just a quick throw of the switch and it's all over with. For every action is a reaction and that's kind of what happens here with this. It has to be staged properly before you can do it. So many considerations. Also these operations, like many Manhattan operations, right? They go on for a long period of time. <laughs> yes, they I do. Mean, you know, it's not a quick one-room fire where you make your way back. You have other considerations, relieving units, mask usage. Sometimes you see our city square block. We have to wear a mask just to get mm -hmm. through a lot of contaminated air. So maybe you could talk about that. I know we have a rebreather unit. Correct. You know, they've been put to use in this sort of thing. Correct. So like you said, th these are very long drawn out incidents, right? There's a lot of standby time to determine once the power is shut off or even while we're awaiting that to happen is fire extending. So we always have a charged hose line in position in case it does. And then your searches. You're talking a massive sized building that you're searching every stairwell, every elevator, and every floor to make sure whether it's smoke migration or a possibility of a fire breaking out on an upper floor. So the use of units is very taxing, and you need a lot of relief. It can escalate to a second or a third alarm. Third alarm maybe just for relief purposes. So earlier this year, we had two incidents in the third division where we used it. We have the rebreather units. They were bought for tunnel rescue case of a terror attack. Maybe take a minute, explain to our wider audience a little bit about what the rebreather is. Sure. So the rebreather mask is a different type of a mask. It's a, it rebreathes where it, the air is filtered through the mask itself, and it cycles it and cleans it, and it allows you to operate for a period of four hours. They were developed for like caving rescues years ago, but it morphed into the, the FDNY after 9-11 for terrorist incidents in tunnels. And the department does several tunnel exercises a year with these, and it's very successful. So what we did was we actually, on their suggestion, the rebreathing unit, said we have this equipment. We also have X amount of members trained in it. What we can do is we can come to an incident where you have a large-scale incident where members might have to be on air, and we can operate this way. And it is a great tool because it's less taxing on our members versus the SCBA, and it gives us the longer duration. So what we had was two incidents this year where once the incident kind of stabilized, more or less, we were still waiting for Con Ed to cut the power, we still had to do extensive searching and so forth through that building. And the rebreather unit and their equipment and the members that respond that are trained, it allows them to operate possibly in a jumpsuit versus bunker gear. So it's a lighter weight there. And then the mask itself is a little bit less taxing on you physically than the SCBA. It's a little bit more weight distribution better and so forth. And that allows us to have them operate a little bit less taxing to do 
the amount of searching and work like that without having a problem versus the SCBA, which is limited and, and very heavy and cumbersome. It's just one of the many special units we have. And while we're on a topic, I thought maybe you could uh, just talk about the vent support group. So we use in the first and the third division especially, we have two high-rise units, high-rise one and high-rise two. So one of those units will come in on a 1077 and a 1076 for us, right, a high-rise commercial building fire. And those units are phenomenal with the amount of use of their fans. They have gas fans, they have electric fans, and I think now they're starting to transition to some battery fans. So it allows us, what we can do is we can base our decisions off of the units monitoring of CO and the smoke, and then say, listen, we have a problem, we have smoke migrating here, or maybe there's a dead-end hallway. Can you basically vent that smoke out of the building for us, you know, the attacks there, or maybe an evacuation there? And I have to tell you, the officers and the members of those units, they train on their knowledge on this is extensive, and they can vent that area out in a matter of minutes. I mean, they can go floor to floor or area to area. And, and with transformer vault rooms, a lot of times it is cellar below grade, so it is a limited type of a ventilation that you're going to get. But somehow they always manage to do that for us, and they clear that smoke and gases out for us, and it, it alleviates a huge problem. It's really interesting. It makes me think a lot. You talk about mega high-rises, and we just know all the construction that's going on there. A while back, we had an officer from 10Truck down by the Trade Center come mm -hmm. on, and he was explaining all the new building systems that were incorporated in the new Trade Center. It was mm -hmm. nothing I had ever heard before. Right. What are you seeing out there? I could only imagine what these newer buildings are doing. Yep. You know, in the old days, we used to just kind of come in and say, shut it down. But a lot of the sciences that have been brought forth, it's not always the best situation to do that. Obviously, the fire floor, the floor above... We're not going to have added additional air movement there until we get the fire under control. But the upper floors, a lot of buildings do have pressurized stairwells and so forth. And the systems themselves are zoned so that you could exhaust the bad air and bring in fresh air. Some buildings, especially the newer modern ones, have purge systems in it. Purge system is a fantastic tool for an incident commander and the units on the scene. What it allows you to do is it's usually a, a locked system. So we utilize our elevator key, our fire department key to, to activate it. And you turn it on and you can do it versus zones or you can do the whole building. And it basically literally purges that smoke and gases out of that building. And my rule of thumb that I like to use when I use the purge system is the, uh, the smoke detectors. If they haven't been reset already, right, and they're still in active alarm mode but just silenced, I'll utilize that purge system and I'll give it like a good 10 or 15 minutes, shut it down, and then I'll go for the reset on the automatic alarm. And if the reset holds, I know we're pretty much, we've accomplished what we needed to. So that's my little rule of thumb on how I do it. But like I said, as the buildings are getting bigger and higher, these systems are in there and they, they are a great aid to preventing a lot of headaches later on with searches and smoke problems that crop up. This is super informative. I do appreciate you coming down again. You're a good guest. I'm happy to have you in, uh, in Midtown Manhattan because there's always something to talk about. <laughs> Thank you for having me. If you want to check out Chief Pascicello's article in the WNYF magazine, it's the Spring 2020 edition, all available on fdnypro.org. Thanks for listening to this edition of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.